So Ecclesiastes is uh, really the perfect book to follow where we've just been. We ended the last two weeks of Genesis by looking at the fall into sin and the resulting curse uh, upon creation. And that's really what this book is wrestling with. Living in a world that is cursed, that is fallen. I first went to study this book in depth a little over five years ago, almost six years ago now, uh, in the aftermath of the death of my friend, uh, his wife and their kids all dying unexpectedly in a car crash. And what I expected to find in this book was, in essence, a sad song, something to lament through. And there's certainly a fair bit of that in this book. But what surprised me is the more I studied the book, the more it increased uh, my joy. And I hope that as we walk throughout this book, that will be similar for you. If not, you can get a full refund later. <laughs> the whole Bible is meant to be read together. It, it tells one unified story. Yet within Scripture, there are these different subunits. Right? And so we would call those the different genres. You have the history books, you have the Gospels, you have the epistles. And then you have what we're dealing with here uh, today, which is wisdom literature. And in, in Scripture, there are five books, in part or in whole, that we would classify as wisdom books. The Song of Solomon is all about the wonders and goodness of romantic and sexual love, and so we're, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that today. The other four books are Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and portions of the Psalms. Right, those four books kind of make up the heart of the wisdom literature. And the Psalms and the Proverbs generally give us this picture of how life normally functions. This is how wisdom normally works. Right? This is how it should go. They are, uni they are general rules for life, not absolute, absolute things that will always happen. And what you see going on in the wisdom Psalms and Proverbs is basically the sowing and reaping principle. If you work hard, generally that will pay off. If you're lazy, generally you will reap the rewards of that. Life is generally like this. Job and Ecclesiastes, though, balance that out. They balance it out by looking at, what about when things don't go that way? What about when the wicked triumph? What about when the lazy man becomes rich? What about when the righteous suffer? How does wisdom respond to that? And in this way, that is what Ecclesiastes is doing. How do you make sense of a world that often doesn't make sense? That is frustrating. And how do you live wisely in that? Now, there's a lot of debate over this book within Christianity. How do you make sense of this book? I think it's only second, probably, uh, to the book of Revelation. As people try to figure out what is this book actually about, and they end up shooting off in various, very even contrary uh, directions. Some think are any, that most of this book is actually an error. So as you walk throughout this book, most of the time, it's just some guy who's really messed up. And then chapter 12 comes in, and there's the second voice, and it corrects everything that came before. So the first 11 chapters are pretty much some guy who's having a bad day, and he gets a lot of things wrong, and chapter 12 corrects that. I understand the urge to treat this book this way because Ecclesiastes gives us a lot of things that don't normally sound very Christian. And he has a way, and here Solomon has a way of giving us sucker punches left and right. 
You think he's going to go this way, and he veers that way. And then you think he's going to go that way, and he veers back the other way. Trying to understand this book that way fails, though, to read the book carefully and grasp what the author's actual argument is. Others view Solomon here as basically drawing a line under the sun and looking at what is life like without God. What is the atheistic or naturalistic life like? And that is then corrected again in chapter 12. And there's some strength to reading it that way. But if you're reading carefully, God is a major character throughout the entire book. Solomon constantly comes back to them. God's providence and sovereignty underline just about everything that goes on in this book. So again, I don't think that's the right way uh, to understand it. And part of this problem really gets at the enigma of this book. Uh, this book is hard to understand, and I believe that is part of the author's intention. David Gibson, commenting on the book, says this, In my opinion, part of the brilliance of Ecclesiastes is that it teaches us that life often slips through our fingers and eludes our comprehension, by itself being elusive and perplexing. The fact that it's hard to understand is part of the teaching, is that life is hard to understand, and life often doesn't fit into the neat categories that we would like it to fit into. At its most basic sense, I think Ecclesiastes is about trying to find gain in this life. It's trying to find profit or something of greater meaning that will last beyond what we can see and feel and touch. And really, Solomon lays that out in the first two verses of the book. Basically, he's trying to break the cycle of this life, which he will call vanity, and find the good life. Find something that will change everything, that will last beyond his life. And many people have gone on this journey throughout world history. In fact, most of us have at least had a little bit of this journey in our life. Whether you call it self-discovery or seeking enlightenment or hedonism, at some point, most of us will look for something more, something greater than our day-to-day experiences, something that can find more meaning in our lives. And what we have in Ecclesiastes is Solomon's God-inspired search to do just that, given to us to help us avoid some of the common pitfalls. And for that reason, I think this is a very, very important book. Because that search and that frustration is something we all wrestle with. It's something philosophers and wise men and sages have been arguing about since the beginning. Solomon tells us as much in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has given you this, and it's unhappy. It's frustrating. We're not often able uh, to find it. This is life in a world under the curse of God. God created everything good. Man fell into sin, and then God cursed the woman. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the man, and he cursed the ground. So that you and I now live in a world that is cursed and bent. There's still goodness. We, we see it. We experience it. But there's also this underlying frustration. Solomon says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. Or in chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God has bent the world. And we don't have the strength to unbend it. If we want to understand this book, there are several repeating phrases that I'm sure you're familiar with that we have to understand. We have to get these 
definitions correct if you want to understand what's going in this book, going on in this book. And the first is, right at the opening, vanity of vanities. Some translations, like the NIV, translate this phrase as meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. And while I'm not great uh, at Hebrew, in fact, it was one of my least favorite classes in seminary, it's a really poor translation. The NIV's translation of meaningless, meaningless is a really bad way to understand what is going on here. And part of the reason why they translate it this way is you have an idiom in the Hebrew. It's a figure of speech. And the figure of speech is are hard to translate literally. You have to do a bit of interpretation to get them into the English. And the Hebrew word there is habel. Habel, habel. It occurs all throughout the Old Testament. And the word is generally translated as breath or mist or vapor. So what Solomon is saying here is breath of breaths, all is breath. Vapor of vapors, all is vapor. I actually think that makes more sense than saying meaningless, meaningless. You, you can capture the picture. Life is a, is a breath. Meaningless, meaningless conveys this idea that it's like a philosophy major comes back from his first semester in college and he's thrown God out the window. He says there's no meaning in life whatsoever. That's not what Solomon will say. In fact, in this chapter and in later chapters, Solomon is going to make arguments that wisdom is better than folly. If everything is meaningless, you don't make that argument. Nothing is better than the other. Breath of breaths is a much better way to understand that phrase. It communicates the transient nature of life, that it goes like a puff of air. It's here today, as the Bible says elsewhere, and gone tomorrow. The second phrase that appears again and again is the idea of chasing or striving after the wind. Again, if you were to take this literally, it would be shepherding the wind. Shepherding the wind is this idea of we trying to control something you cannot control. You can't actually shepherd or chase or catch the wind. It's futile to do that. When we drove down for my last class uh, last month or we drove by all of these windmills. And whenever we drive by windmills, they're always not spinning. Right? Just chasing, trying to harness the wind. Well, you can't actually control the wind. As much as we want to think we can, we cannot. And this is what he's getting at. We want to try to control life. We want to dictate everything that's going to happen in our marriage, at our job, with our kids. But we're not God. And every time you try to grasp tighter, it just the air slips through your fingers and you get a fistful of air, a fistful of nothing. And the third phrase is under the sun. Again, there's a lot of debate about what he means here by saying under the sun. Some take it again as that drawing a line between heaven and earth and we're only looking at the earthly plane. But as we walk throughout this book, you're going to see we spend a lot of time looking at the heavenly plane as well. But I think instead of that, what under the sun is getting at is just, what is it like to live in this world? It's not just for those who don't reckon God, but what is it like for any of us to live in this world under the sun? The sun that will rise tomorrow morning is the same sun that Adam walked under, that Moses walked under, that Abraham walked under, and that Jesus walked under. It's the same sun you walk under. It's the same sun that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will walk under if the Lord tarries. He is saying this is what life is like in this age, in this world, for all of us. And fourth, what undergirds so much of this book is the idea of frustration 
and death. The main culprit, the main enemy in Ecclesiastes is death. Death and all of its friends are constantly frustrating Solomon's attempt to find gain, to find that thing that will last. And so we live in a world where death is our enemy and we have to learn to live with it. We live in a world where brain aneurysms take 10-year-olds, where cancer robs people of their lives, where Alzheimer's steals people's memories and identities, We live in a world where those are realities and trite Christian sayings do nothing to comfort you. Ecclesiastes does not have those trite sayings for you. We live in a universe where the law of entropy reigns, where chaos and disorder often seem stronger. And Solomon's advice is, if we are going to really live well, we had better account for that. We had better factor that into our equations for living. And so he starts off, on this search. And we'll start in verses 2 and verse 3. The wisest man to ever live sets out on a search for gain, a way to break through vanity, a way to break through the frustrations of life. And he tells us as much starting there in verse 2. Breath of breaths, says the preacher. Breath of breaths. All is breath. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. You should hear that frustration uh, from him. This is his thesis. This is the point he's going to be proving and arguing throughout the rest of the book, right? This is the header. This is what I'm talking about. Life is breath. What do I gain? What do you gain for all of your hard work and all of your toil under this sun? And that is the question that launches this book. Since life is a breath, since it is vain, Where do we find gain? What's the point? Can I overcome this vanity? Can I break the cycle? Is there a way I can escape this? And the idea of gain here is a way, or is finding something that will fundamentally change my life, that will fundamentally change this world, something that will last beyond the vanity, beyond beyond the death that reigns. Is there a way to put a dent in this? And in some ways, every generation tries to do this. Every one of us. The generation that arises, it rebels against the generation that came before it. And it says, this is what's actually going to be different. This is what's actually going to be better. And then the next generation comes and rebels against that generation. And while movements certainly impact history and have consequences, they all ultimately fizzle out. For they they are all stuck under the same sun. You can think of the major movements in the last century. They sought to fundamentally reorder society, to bring gain, to bring something that would change and would last. Karl Marx, in his view of man, was being basically an economic being, and that capitalism was the great evil uh, that was holding man down. And this, his philosophy, ushered in communism, which would, it was argued, through struggle, usher in a gain in the form of a utopia for the worker. Eventually, we are going to reach this worker's utopia. And what was promised as gain brought unspeakable loss. Over 100 million people murdered in the search of that gain. Marxism and all of its offshoots are the most oppressive worldview this world has ever seen, if you're just going by the numbers. 
and, sp and spouting those theories off have no business, or those who believe those theories have no business lecturing anyone else on being oppressive. It's the log meeting the speck in the eye. Think of another movement, the promise of the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, sometimes called the New Left. It would usher in this era of free love and uh, fundamentally reorder the world of peace and love and understanding. And yet, as that generation is aging, we have still have the problems of children murdered in the womb for convenience, sexual assault in the Me Too movement, commonplace, gender confusion, gender mutilation, depression and anxiety, broken homes, broken marriages, no gain. Okay. We were going to change everything. No, you didn't. In fact, we often make things worse when we think we're going to. The list could go on and on and on. We peddle this from generation to generation. We are going to change things fundamentally, but we can't. On a personal level, we think that we can find this gain through many things. You try them all. Right? Maslow has his hierarchy of needs, that the highest good, if you're really going to have a good life, you need to reach the pinnacle of his pyramid, self-actualization. To be authentically you and to be able to be free to mold and shape yourself. Yet there's no gain there. You're not strong enough to change the world. You're not strong enough to even really change yourself. We can place that gain, that greater meaning, in good things like having a good job or having nice stuff or a good relationship. Are your kids doing really well? Those things are wrong, but they won't give you that gain. And so Solomon asks, what does all of this toil do? What, what does it amount to? And the implied answer, as depressing as it is, is nothing. The implied answer is nothing. And to make this point, he looks at the repetitive nature of life by turning to the repeating cycles of this world. Verses 4 through 7. Solomon says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So Solomon says, this life is like on repeat. It's continually doing the same things over and over again. And to demonstrate that, he gives us four cycles. The coming and going of generations, the rising and the setting of the sun, the blowing of the wind, and the streams flowing into the ocean. In all of this, we see the predictable nature of life. As I already said, the same sun that rises over us rose over our forefathers and will rise over our children. Generation X and Z will give way to the next generation. Millennials will rise in all of their glory and then they will disappear, just as the generations did before. Solomon even notes the water cycle. He says the rain comes down, it fills the streams, the streams flows to the oceans, but I can't find an ocean that's actually full. Why? Because the water evaporates. It's not like the glass in your kitchen that you can fill to the brim and then overflows. The water just keeps going in cycles and cycles, continually over and over and over again. Life just keeps going. The cycles God has put into place will continue until everything ends. They just keep going. And there's a, there's a bit at which we should marvel at that. 
Naturalism has blinded us to the wonder uh, we should have of these things. We look at the water cycle and we're bored with it. Oh, the ocean gets all these water that runs into it and it's never filled. Who cares? We take it for granted. And yet this world and the universe function with such precision, consistency, and predictability because God has finally tuned it to do so. It's not nature's laws, it's God's laws. He, he runs the universe in an orderly and designed way for our good. So you can place a bet down today. I'm not a gambling man, but you can place a bet down today that the sun will rise tomorrow because God has designed the universe to do that. And it's a reminder of his greatness and his faithfulness. But Solomon looks at this repetitiveness, and instead of seeing good, he sees it as a frustration. Verses 8 through 10. Looking at the repeating cycles of life, he says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. So he sees the repeating cycles of life and he says, this just makes me weary. and makes me tired. But I want to search for something new. He says, is there anything new? Is there something different in all of these cycles? Is there something greater than that? And he says, there's nothing new under the sun. None of this is new. And I can say with great confidence, understanding what he means here, that he's 100% correct. There is nothing new under the sun. Even though I have right now in my pocket a supercomputer that's only about this big that can connect me to things all around this world, good and bad things, and that a new iPhone comes out every other month saying, oh, look, it's new. It's really not. It's not just Christians who have noticed this. William Powers, the author of a book called Hamlet's Blackberry, says this, Though we barely realize it, every day we use connective tools that were invented thousands of years ago. And his point is this. Your phone, which has written stuff on it, is really just an advancement on pen and paper or carving into a stone. It's fundamentally the same thing. It just does it a little bit more efficiently. You can think about, for example, all the weapons that we have today, from fully automatic guns to fighter jets and atomic bombs. And they are at their base no different than the rock Cain used to kill his brother. It's just a different killing tool that's more efficient and more effective. Sure, if you're in a fight, you want those instead of the rock. But fundamentally, they're the same thing. Everything that we make and that we design is built upon something that was already there beforehand. And yet, especially in today's world, we have this desire for something new. Like We are obsessed with fad after fad. Give me that new thing. That new thing will give me meaning. And it ends up in the dump in a year. And so we are promised gain in a thousand different ways with products and experiences and entertainment. Whatever is the latest, greatest thing is a must-have. But it's just the same story on repeat. It's something we use to numb away and to ignore the frustration of life. And if we are paying attention, we start to feel that weariness, that the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That even though we're constantly getting new things, 
You never have enough. Even though we've seen all of these stories, all of these movies and these television shows that we can probably predict how they're going to end, we're never sick of hearing it again. And the law of diminishing returns tells us that the more we do something, the less we get from it. And so we search for new. We search for satisfaction. But the world as God has made it for us will not allow that to happen. It will not allow that to break through. And the catch here is, generally speaking, the more abundance we have in this area, the less satisfying it actually becomes for us. David Wells comments on this phenomenon in America. He says, we've never had so much, yet we've never had so little. Little. Never have we had more choices, more easily accessible education, more freedoms, more affluence, more sophisticated appliances, better cars, better houses, more comfort or better health care. This is one side of our paradox. The other side, though, is that by every measure, depression has never been more prevalent, anxiety higher, or confusion widespread. Then he talks about our children. He says, they often report that though they grew up in good homes, they had all they wanted, they went on to college, and perhaps they entered the workplace. They are nevertheless baffled by the emptiness they feel. Their self-esteem is high, but their self is empty. They grew up being told they could be anything they wanted to be, but they do not know what they want to be. They are unhappy, but there seems to be no cause for their unhappiness. They are more connected to more people through the internet, and yet they have never felt more lonely. They want to be accepted, and yet they often feel alienated. Never have we had so much, and never have we had so little. That is our paradox. Your clothes, your phone, your computer, your college, your car, your status, your job, and your wealth can't bring the game. And we are living that uh, every single day. It simply does not have the power to do so. It is a vanity of vanities to try to use those things for gain. And that is the weariness of which he speaks. And if you're paying attention, and in your honest and quiet moments throughout life, you feel it. I know you do. You feel it. And that brings, to the final, brings us to the final point of chapter 1. Our limitations. Verses 12 through 18 start with an admission that we can't make the world straight. And then Solomon describes his search for wisdom and knowledge and how it amounted to striving after the wind. He says in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He says the more you know, the greater you're going to be frustrated. Your frustration will grow because you will see and run into this vanity again and again. I think this is doubly true in a social media age. We have so much access to information at your fingertips, and it just frustrates us even more. We're not meant to be omnipresent and all-knowing. Education is great. It's good to know things, but education cannot save the world. Money is a good gift from God, but it will not transform you or society for the better. The world is broken, and we cannot return to the garden on our own. And Solomon's point here is that man in his limitation, if he wants to be wise, he has to start by acknowledging that. That those things don't work. Because it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
you are supposed to feel that frustration. That's part of living life in this world. And so as we live our lives, we can be tempted to search for gain and escape the trials of this life. And as we try to do that, we try to ignore the frustration. We just slip further into it. We try to escape it through video games or entertainment or drugs because we know that it doesn't work. We know we can't escape it. So no matter what you get, no matter how smart you are, no matter how strong you are, popular or successful, you, just like everybody else, is stuck in this cycle. And that's what chapter one's all about, introducing that search, that we are all leveled out here. And he will expound on that throughout the book. As we try to shepherd and control the wind, we grasp and we get nothing. And that's the bad news. I could leave you sitting here on the edge of ruin for the whole week (laughs) into despair as you go to work tomorrow morning, but I won't do that because I'm a really nice guy at heart. The last thing I want us to consider here is that God has provided something new. God has provided something to break the cycles of this world. God has provided gain, and the gain comes through Christ. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says this about his imprisonment and his possible execution. He says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I think I know what he alluding to here. Death is never gain in the Old Testament. In Ecclesiastes, death is the enemy of gain. And yet Paul says, in light of Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What fundamentally new thing broke the cycles of this broken world? The death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. With his work, Christ breaks his kingdom, into this world. He's the first fruits of the new kingdom that is marked not by death, not by the law of entropy, but by eternal life in Christ Jesus. Centuries of men have sought for that gain, and they've all come up short or despaired. You can read the great philosophers of the ages. None of them could solve this conundrum because death still took them. The only thing that can make straight what God has bent is God himself. Ecclesiastes 7.13. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? God. Only God can do that. Only he is strong enough. And that comes through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He defeats death by dying. That death is swallowed up in victory so that his people can say, Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is that vanity anymore? Where is that frustration that now a Christian can rightly say and look at death, the great and final enemy, and say, that is gain now. All of that is transformed by the work of Christ. So the longing for gain that Solomon speaks of points directly and invariably to the Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll say this to you many times and say it again. All of the Bible's about him. I think it's a really straight line here in the book of Ecclesiastes. To live in this broken world as a Christian is Christ. It is to live well. It is to live in hope, even among the frustrations of this life. Because we are in the one who conquers. And to die is to gain, for we are in Christ.
Christ. Gain comes for, or through him alone. The thing that Solomon was looking forward to is Christ. To live is Christ and to die is gain, for he defeated death by dying. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the frustrations of this life. We thank you that they are like megaphones in our hearts, reminding us that this is not all there is, reminding us that we are designed for more, and that while sin and death reign, you have provided a way through Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have provided gain, that you are making straight what was bent. And Lord, I ask for those here today that as they live in this world of great joys and great frustrations, that they would learn to live in light of this truth, to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's in your name we pray. Amen.